On the morning of the 7th of August 2008, Russia invaded Georgia, sending its 58th Army into sovereign Georgian territory. The army of one state had crossed the border of another without consent, making it a clear-cut case of military aggression under international law. This week, we've got Georgia on our minds. We've got Georgia on our minds because 15 years ago this week, a new era of Russian imperial expansion commenced with Moscow's August 2008 invasion of that South Caucasus country. We've got Georgia on our minds because the tepid Western response to that invasion emboldened Vladimir Putin and laid the groundwork for his future invasion of Ukraine. And we've got Georgia on our minds because this once staunchly pro-Western country is today backsliding on democracy and sliding deeper and deeper into Moscow's orbit. So what are the lessons of Russia's invasion of Georgia 15 years ago this week? And is the country's backsliding on democracy and descent into Moscow's sphere of influence reversible? Well, I've got just the guests to help us unpack it all, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Tbilisi, Georgia, is Georgi Kondralaki, who served as a member of the Georgian Parliament in 2008 to 2020 and is currently a project manager with the Soviet Past Research Laboratory, also known as Sovlab. Welcome to The Vertical, Georgi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So, so back in the summer of 2008, Georgia was a very, very different place. A pro-Western government seeking to steer the country into NATO and the EU was in power. And then came Russia's invasion on the night of August 7th and 8th, which only lasted five days, but ended in a shaky ceasefire and a flawed ceasefire and resulted in Russia occupying 20% of Georgian territory. Today, Georgia is backsliding on democracy, is de facto ruled by an unelected Russia-connected oligarch, Vizina Ivanishvili, through his party, Georgian Dream. Unlike Ukraine and Moldova, Georgia did not receive EU candidacy status, and Georgian leaders did not even attend the NATO summit in Vilnius this year. Georgi, before we start unpacking where Georgia is today, how do you see this descent over the past 15 years? Was the Russian invasion the catalyst for this descent? And what lessons can we draw from that war 15 years ago? Uh, uh, well, there, there are a number of uh, lessons uh, that can be drawn and that are very relevant today, of course, as this genocidal war in Ukraine goes on, the aggression against Ukraine, and, and as Russia still is uh, trying to reverse the results of the Cold War, essentially, and as Vladimir Putin still thinks he can pull it off in Ukraine and keep uh, clinch on this agenda of reversing the results of the Cold War. I think the key reason, of course, was that ambiguity and lack of clarity uh, invites further aggression. You know, that is the key lesson uh, that that the civilized world, that the free world, and I'm happy that this term is back uh, um, in the discourse, uh, um, had to learn uh, in 2008. It's, it was very unfortunate for for Georgia, but also I think for for the free world that uh, Russia, despite what it did, uh, uh, which was the uh, first uh, time all-out war after the Second World War that Russia launched, it remained a problematic but partner. Uh, the uh, people in key capitals didn't really appreciate uh, what was Vladimir Putin's agenda, even though he was very articulate about it, uh, both publicly and in closed meetings with Western officials, as we now learn more and more from uh, some some newly published memoirs and, and uh, other sources, such as, of course, William Burris's uh, newly published uh, memoir. Yeah, I mean, I when I think back to that war, and I, I was covering it for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and I remember the early stages of the war, and I remember the debates that were going on in Western capitals about how the war actually started. And there was this narrative out there that got a lot of currency in the West that Georgia actually started the war. And this was the result of, of 
of then President Mikhail Saakashvili being erratic and impulsive. Um, this ignored, of course, the fact that Georgian troops never left Georgian territory. So I don't know how the hell you start a war without your troops leaving your territory. But nevertheless, this this narrative was there, and people like myself, and others are. Go ahead. It it was it was more than that. Unfortunately, Russian uh, successful Russian information or influence operations, if you will, on the world stage, managed to 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 convince a lot of reasonable people that what amounted to quote unquote starting the war was not uh, an army of one country crossing the border of another without consent, but actually the victim of the aggression starting resistance, which is exactly what happened because they, because, and that, that's actually the peculiar divergence of uh, dates um, tells us a lot about this right. uh, particular aspect of the whole thing, which, because the Russian army, which was not part of the, 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 the in large numbers, Russian armor in large numbers, that was not part of the so-called peacekeeping troops. And that's another important story, how Russia managed to impose fake peacekeeping formats upon Georgia in the early 90s when President Sevashevanadze was in place. But the Russian army crossed the border of Georgia in uh, on August the 7th. Georgia put out armed resistance on large scale to that invading, against that invading force on August the 8th. Yet, uh, yet the, the influence operations portrayed Georgia, there's this resistance is quote-unquote uh, start of the war, not the the uh, an act of war, so which uh, we, which of course um, under international law is when an army of one country crosses the border of another. Right. Yeah, I mean, and to give our our listeners a little background here, I mean, you basically you had these two regions of Georgia, uh, South Ossetia or the Skingvali region, as we should properly call it, and Abkhazia, and there were rumors throughout the summer that 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 tensions were 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 going to flare, that Russia was planning on something. This didn't really come as a surprise when it happened. At first, all our eyes were on Abkhazia, um, and then it happened in South Ossetia. In the days preceding the Russian invasion, the the the, the Ossetian village were shelling Georgian villages in 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 the Skingvali region. The narrative that initially came out is that Saakashvili sent troops to South Ossetia, the Skingvali region, to stop that, and then the Russians responded to that. Although the timeline gets very very murky. There is evidence that, 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 that Russian troops had crossed the border before this, but there was this deliberately created ambiguity on the Russians' part. Then they were pushing the narrative that Saakashvili had gone crazy, right? Um, the, the, the Russian news broadcasts were accusing Georgia of genocide um, in, in, in South Ossetia. I always like to say, before we learned about the Ukrainian fascists, we learned about the Georgian genocide. Yes. But yes. this operation was successful in a lot of ways, this information operation, because there was a debate in the West. Now, I think we've learned our lessons now. Um, in 2014, Russia tried similar tactics with Ukraine um, and in, 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 in 2022 as well, but nobody was buying them this, the, this, this last time. Was Georgia kind of the guinea pig here uh, that had to kind of suffer to kind of take the mask off of these Russian tactics? In just in two words, uh, context is is important, and I mentioned how Russia managed to impose this uh, formats uh, upon Georgia. And what matters here, and what your um, um, audience would would I think be uh, curious, to, interested to hear, is that in early nineties, as Soviet Empire, the Emil Empires, um, as Ronald Reagan rightly called it, uh, fell apart, uh, and as as Georgia didn't want to join the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, Russia uh, effectively steered uh, some of these ethnic tensions, not only in Georgia, elsewhere too. Mm-hmm. And through its proxy forces, like in Donbass, in Ukraine, later on after 2014, uh, but through the proxy forces upon which the Russian Federation at any point in time exercised what is known in international law as effective control. In other words, this quote-unquote separatist forces de facto constituted branches of the Russian armed forces and were commanded by Russian generals, trained by Russian generals, and Russian servicemen, officers, uh, junior and senior, were 
sort of the backbone of these forces. They constituted parts of the Russian armed forces. These um, forces carried out uh, in 92, especially 1993, uh, uh, what has all signs of genocide in Abkhazia of Georgia, expelling the majority of Abkhazia's prior population, the majority. Uh, and uh, uh, and then afterwards, Russia managed to impose uh, upon President Shevardnadze for in 1994 formats. Uh, even though Russia uh, Russia was a party to the conflict, Russia uh, was playing a mediator. Imagine Russia deploying peacekeeping formats in Ukraine uh, and uh, claiming mediation between the Ukrainian central government and the Donbas self self declared republics. Imagine that. That there, there is no difference, really. They so tried that. That's exactly. Yeah, exactly. But that's like, but they did succeed with that in Georgia in 1994, in 90s, and of course that created a, a time bomb uh, inside Georgia. And when the Rose Revolution happened in 2003, and when the, when some serious reforms were launched following the Rose Revolution, the, that despite all the bombs and all the troubles, despite that. The, all of that transformed Georgia into from a failed state into a functioning country. When all of that started unfolding, of course, Russia uh, and what with Putin uh, at the helm of Russia uh, started um, uh, enacting those leverages, uh, such as those uh, so-called frozen conflicts. The situation was that uh, was like a checkmate. No, uh, Russia didn't control all of Abkhazia and all of South Ossetia. There were parts that. Uh, still were under the uh, jurisdiction of the uh, legitimate central Georgian government, then Russia was just playing with that as as a leverage to uh, not allow Georgia's civilized development and Georgia's full-fledged integration into the family of civilized nations, which is something, uh, the consensus on this issue that is absolutely predates Rose Revolution or, uh, or the Rose Revolution government for sure. And earlier, uh, of course, in the earlier 20th century, is the example, and we'll t t touch upon that, how this consensus existed uh, there before. And by the way, this is one of the important lies that the Russian propaganda managed to more or less successfully sell to the international community, that the desire to become part of the uh, family of civilized nations, so NATO and European Union, this desire, desire was a sort of an obsession of the Russian Revolution sort of generation and was against the will of the majority of Georgians. It's a total lie, but somehow in this bombardment of the Western public opinion and, and, and political elites, and more or less this line, this lie and this line to more or less so, was successfully sold. So that was the situation where Georgia was in 2008. And then, of course, we have an incredibly important landmark, including in the context of uh, the current situation in Ukraine, the Bucharest NATO summit, yes, in 2008, uh, in spring of 2008, when, when essentially Russia is granted veto power um, by some of the NATO allies that now recognize this as a serious mistake, uh, uh, and um, right after the Bucharest summit, Russia starts deployment of troops in parts of Abkhazia and South Ossetia that it effectively had already occupied. Uh, bringing in, constructing railway in Abkhazia and, and so forth, shooting down Georgian UAV over Abkhazia in spring 2008. And then uh, things get uh, heating up starting from August the 1st. Of course, preceding those days, you have the massive military exercise in North Caucasus, Caucasus 2008, an enormous military exercise. And once it ends, the Russian troops, the 58th Army doesn't leave. To doesn't return to barracks, right? It stays on, and then you have this escalation starting on August first. Um, well, as you correctly noted, the bombardment of uh, uh, Georgian civilians. You know, we have casualties every day. We have our uh, peacekeepers uh, in this old format uh, dying and getting wounded, and uh, finally on August the seventh, you have uh, a large units crossing into Georgia of the 58th Army, and which is a full-fledged, that's why the start of the date when a full-fledged invasion of Georgia started is August the 7th. 7th. And, uh, exactly. And then Georgia 
declares unilateral ceasefire, and then um, after several hours, when when the movement continues, Georgia um, um, decides to uh, use legitimate force uh, based on UN charter and uh, and uh, resist the invasion until we manage to mobilize the international community, which was of course very difficult at the time. Not not only because of the uh, the international situation and the modus operandi of the West towards Russia, which considered Russia problematic but partner, but also because of the of particular timing of the launch of the invasion, which was, you know, holiday season, Friday evening, and most importantly, start of the Olympics uh, in Beijing, where the world's attention was uh, glued on, on that uh, event. And uh, everyone thought that uh, this some skirmish in Georgia could be dealing with that could be postponed to uh, next week or after the holiday season. And so mobilizing international attention wasn't wasn't so easy either. Uh, and and so the, the challenge for the Georgian army was was enormous to stop stop and halt uh, or slow down this <clears throat> armada uh, essentially. And another one so there are so many I mean one can lose count of of the lies with which Russian propaganda bombarded the the Western public opinion, and one such lie was that uh, that uh, the, the United States was arming and, and preparing the sort of the inciting Georgia to start this war against Russia. And some smart people in the United States in Washington were uh, were uh, were tricked into this uh, into believing this uh, utter nonsense. The truth is, and uh, well, this came out many times, but as they say, repetition is the mother of knowledge. That the the kind of training Georgia received was uh, very limited and mostly fo was focused on uh, sort of counterinsurgency type of warfare, uh, because Georgia was an important contributing member of uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and international um, uh, forces in in Afghanistan. Right, there was three choice in training equipped. Yes, but it was counterinsurgency, and and counterinsurgency warfare is very different from territorial defense and resisting uh, a conventional army with uh, with an overwhelming air force. I mean, I I saw once uh, a radar picture which had uh, fifty four Russian aircraft uh, in the Georgian airspace in one time, at at once. And so the 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 the, the odds were. I mean, the Georgian army really did a remarkable job in slowing down this uh, advance and even wounding the commanding general of the 58th Army in early escape death in uh, in, a, in a very well planned operation, General Krulo. So that was the situation. Uh, we had the. I mean, of course, what what really stopped the Russian advance was uh, President George Bush. Uh, announcing military humanitarian operation when humanitarian aid was delivered to Georgia by the U.S. military, and the, in ten minutes after this announcement, when uh, U.S. president was flanked by Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense Robert Gates and Condoleezza Rice, the Russian advance stopped. Then, of course, <clears throat> was the EU brokered ceasefire agreement signed by the French President Nicolas Sarkozy on behalf of the European Union. Uh, uh, which, of course, still remains unfulfilled because it envisaged uh, the withdrawal of Russian forces from the Georgian territory. Uh, but uh, but uh, people, especially in Western Europe, were eager to return to business as usual in just a few months' time. Um, and and uh, Russia was still considered... Uh, the lesson wasn't learned, learned and Russian, Russia was still considered uh, a difficult but partner. The modus operandi of dealing with Russia wasn't uh, wasn't revised, and uh, there was no comprehensive policy review, uh, so to speak. That eventually led to the Crimea, as Georgia was actually warning uh, right in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. <clears throat> it was followed by Crimea, the the war, uh, the first war in eastern Ukraine, uh, simultaneously with Crimea and the atrocities there, resulting in the deaths of twelve thousand people. And eventually, the full-fledged invasion, the all-out war, with the aim of again, with the aim of not subject, not only subjugating Ukraine, but reversing the results of the Cold War in Europe. Yeah, no, and I think I mean before I want to get into a little bit about where, what's going on in Georgia today, but before I do, sure. the context yeah. for what we're talking about here, I think I'm convinced, um, and these are ideas I'm kind of working out right now for a project I'm working on. But that the, the mistakes the West made were between 91 and 2008. 
um, basically not seeing Russia for what it was in a lot of ways. If you look at the history of the conflicts in the Skingvali region and in Abkhazia, they are effectively, they, they emerged in the late Soviet period. They were KGB projects um, as, 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 as the republics of the former Soviet Union were beginning to move towards autonomy and independence. And Georgia was in the lead on this. They were among the first. Um, this was followed the, following the events of April, April 1989 on Rustavelli Avenue, uh, the, the, the massive protests and the massacre. You began to see this, this creation of a parade of sovereignty. The notion is, okay, Georgia, you're going to declare independence from the Soviet Union. We're going to provoke Abkhazia and South Ossetia to, to declare independence from you. This was a KGB project. Soviet Union collapses. That operation still going on. Uh, it's not necessarily directed from the Kremlin in, in, in the Yeltsin period. It's very unclear right now what was the case there. It was certainly used, manipulated, and leveraged by the Kremlin when it suited its interests. Then Putin comes in and sees he has this asset with which to exert leverage over Georgia on. But the West looked at this as if Russia were the, the, were the responsible actor in a lot of these situations. Tendency to prioritize our relationships with Moscow over our relationships with Tbilisi or with Kiev or with Kishinev or other former Soviet capitals. I think this kind of set the stage and created the context with which the events of 2008 unfolded. Would you agree with that? It's it's quite a quite interesting question to explore to what extent Yeltsin knew or didn't know about uh, what the Russian armed forces were doing in Abkhazia, in particular in 92, and in particular in 1993, uh, with the, with the, essentially a genocide uh, with with mass executions like in Bucha. And, and there is a campaign in Georgia called before Bucha, there was Abkhazia, and, and there certainly was. Uh, well, we know that the whole operation was directed by the GRU, uh, the, the generals and the military establishment in particular, that, that uh, play, sort of put a lot of blame for for the collapse of the Soviet Union upon Eduard Chavarnate, who was, of course, in previous period, the Soviet foreign, uh, foreign minister. But at least um, uh, the final uh, final act uh, was uh, was uh, with Yeltsin's knowledge, as we know, because Russia Russia uh, forced Georgia to sign a, a ceasefire in July 1993, when Georgia pulled out troops and uh, armor from Sukhumi, uh, and then in just and the schools and kindergartens resumed work, and just in, in few weeks' time, with the direct participation of the Russian army. From Kudauta Air, uh, Kudauta Base, uh, uh, essentially the the Russian proxy forces launched an assault on on, on very lightly armed defenders, uh, and there was a massive massacre that was carried out in in, in Sukhumi. Overall, ten thousand uh, civilians died, uh, which for such a small country as Georgia is an enormous, colossal amount. In in and of course, uh, more than two hundred thousand, almost three hundred thousand. People were um, ejected from their homes, their property uh, taken away. Uh, so uh, you are absolutely right uh, that uh, still uh, good relations with Yeltsin and supporting the reforms in Russia were regarded as the absolute priority in in key, in key Western capitals. The mess in which Georgia found itself following the events of 91 92 also of course didn't uh, help georgia's cause and the and the aspiration that the georgia society had at that time or this time or in an earlier time this aspiration was all always there to to become part of the west and then european family of of nations but uh, but of course uh, fast forward to the the first uh, war in chechnya which must have been the genocidal war in chechnya must have been uh, uh, the wake up call but of course, then you have the uh, 1999 and Putin coming to power uh, after this very, very strange apartment bombings. Great book by David Satter, by the way. I yes. think uh, every government uh, officials uh, in, in NATO member states must be re reading this book very thoroughly to understand what, what the Russian government is capable of. Uh, and then you have the second war in Chechnya. And then and then you have Vladimir Putin... <clears throat> Uh, stating very clearly what his agenda is, and just nobody wanted to let, to 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 listen here, basically, and to to hear what what he actually was um, saying. 
and uh, and uh, I think the great opportunity that was missed was uh, was uh, again still Bucharest summit and and uh, seizing the opportunity of uh, the Rose Revolution and the reforms and and uh, basically uh, if Georgia would uh, would get the membership action plan uh, in Bucharest uh, the war wouldn't happen. Why the history doesn't like these kinds of speculations, but. Uh, uh, but uh, I think right now most people agree, including the opponents of the of the uh, granting Georgia map, that uh, this vague formulation and the denial of the membership action plan and a clear path towards membership uh, aren't pragmatically hurt not only Georgia and invite invited NATO uh, Russian aggression and emboldened Putin to go ahead with the with the invasion, but uh, most importantly it hurt the Western interest and and. Uh, ended up with a bigger trouble down the road. Yeah, no, I was at that summit in Bucharest. And remember, Putin was there. Putin was actually present. Absolutely. At Absolutely. And he, at the end of the summit, he gave a press, a triumphal press conference. Um, but I like to think back to that because there was a lot of support for granting Georgia and Ukraine membership action plans at that summit. It was a majority of NATO, certainly a clear majority. But it was the Germans and the French that basically threw a wrench in the works, effectively. I mean, you had the U.S., Canada, the United Kingdom, all the Eastern European countries. I mean, you had a pretty strong majority. And I like to think of that what if. if what if there had been a membership action plan? What, how different would the world look right now? Of course, we don't know. What I want to move to now is because 2008, I think, was the beginning of the end for this this. Uh, this dream of a of a of a of a Western Georgia that emerged after the Rose Revolution. Following 2008, you saw this kind of this uh, deterioration of Saakashvili, the Saakashvili government's uh, le- leadership, and that culminated in the 2012 election, which brought the Georgian dream to power, which put us where we are today. Do you see a direct line between 2008? And the fall of Saakashvili in twenty and in, in, in he remained president until twenty thirteen, but effectively he was out of power by twenty twelve. Well, I think uh, yes, there were there, there was uh, there were bumps, serious bumps after two thousand eight, but um, still some uh, important reforms uh, whose legacy uh, of legacy of which Georgia still enjoys were carried out. But most importantly. Uh, I think from today's perspective, it is important to see 2012 and the first ever change of government through elections in Georgia as still as a kind of achievement. You know, the, the way democracy works is that sometimes strange people will win elections. I mean, back in 1994, you know, and that's how it works. But it, it's, you know, it, it's another challenge for, for uh, it's, it's, it's a test or it's, a, it's the benefit of having a democratic system that Sometimes this uh, this can be corrected again through elections, but of course, as as it is very well known, it is not one time change of government that is a test, but it, it is whether a, a country a, a a polity is able to uh, change governments through elections on a regular basis. And right. right now, that's one of the big questions that Georgia, the country, has to answer: whether that change can be replicated when the voters decide. So, and I do believe voters already want was such change. But the point is that the change of government through elections in a civilized, almost a textbook way, when a strong incumbent uh, relinquished power and recognized, conceded defeat, uh, basically in an instant, it was some kind of still, you know, of course, those who lost and, and I was part of that team were not too happy about that. Who likes losing? But uh, it was still an achievement of the Rose Revolution reforms that such kind of change became possible. And so uh, uh, the way uh, to war uh, was instrumentalized by Russian, uh, and, and in this case, Georgian dream also, and that that, that remains a, probably the most important, uh, potent uh, sort of PR weapon was that uh, the fear of war, yeah. the gambling on the right. fear of war. And most people in Georgia understand that Russia remains a, a, a serious danger, an existential danger for for Georgia, <clears throat> and and playing on this fear of war, uh, and now that is sort of the, the the number one PR strategy for for the Georgian slash Russian disinformation, 
is perhaps the, uh, the, the the an indirect answer to to, to your question. The point they were they, so the point, uh, you know, the, both the Russian government and Georgian Dream were making is that unless uh, Rose Revolution government loses, uh, there will be another war. Do you really want that? Yeah, and that was, I mean, and there was a lot going on there in 2012. I mean, the Saakashvili government was was legit, was actually losing um, losing authority. They've been in power for a while. Um, you had things like the prison torture scandal and things like that, which hurt its, its authority. But that said, Russia saw that opportunity and created this operation, right? The, I mean, I'm convinced this was an operation, um, that Bidzina Ivanishvili, the, the, the oligarch who has no elected office right now, but is the, to, for our listeners, who is the, who is the finances, the ruling Georgian party, Georgian dream, and is the de facto ruler of the country, really. He earned all his money in Russia in the nineties, um, and, and and so he has a very serialized place. <laughs> he has this uh, this inclination towards Russia, and over time, it's almost been like boiling a frog in water. When the when the Georgian Dream uh, Coalition first came to power, you had pro Western elements in there. You had Arakli Alassani as the defense minister in the beginning, for example. Um, so so you 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 had a lot of some pro Western, the Republican Party of Georgia was part of that coalition. But over time, the pro-Western elements were purged from the leadership, and you effectively got to where we are now, which is effectively state capture. I mean, that's the only way I can describe the situation in Georgia now. I mean, can you, can, how do you see the situation right now? Do you, do, is the state completely captured, or can this could be reversed through elections? Uh, well, I do believe it, it still can be reversed uh, through elections, and it's certainly the job of uh, Georgian citizens and uh, and and uh, uh, political actors and civil society to to score this reversal and uh, and achieve this change through democratic means and electoral means to produce a convincing victory. But I think uh, what what is an important sort of number two factor uh, after this is is uh, uh, a a correct and adequate understanding and reading of the situation in Georgia by Georgia's friends and 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 uh, uh, partners who certainly do not want uh, the continuation of the growth of Russian influence in Georgia because a key dynamic in parallel to all of the warring dynamics that you correctly described is the growth of Russian influence and this goes really hand in hand uh, I mean they when all the the uh, the, the skeptics, myself included, from early on warned that the backsliding of democracy was proportionate or correlated with the growth of Russian influence as Georgia right. drift towards the Russian orbit, orbit. And this really goes hand in hand. It's just more crystallized now, but the symptoms were there from, from early on. And even, even back in, from day one, Ivanish really was very clear what, what his foreign policy vision was. He said, Armenian foreign policy is something to emulate for for Georgia. He was saying that in 2012. Uh, remember that. So, uh, uh, so it's very important to read the situation uh, correctly. It's very important to remember that you cannot appeal to Ivanishvili with uh, with notions such as you know Georgian interest and and these things. Uh, he cares about him, you know, staying in power. And if that takes. Uh, a gradual drift towards the Kremlin orbit, so so be it. And that's exactly what we are uh, witnessing now uh, with time as this drift deepens. And I think one of the things that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown is that this drift has gone farther than most people have, uh, have thought and thought it did. Yeah. Uh, the, the Russian influence in Georgia is bigger, the Ukraine war has shown, than most people thought it was. Uh, and uh, and with time, the the Western sort of the European and American leverage over Georgia diminishes as this Russian influence grows. And and my argument is very very simple: that in order to reverse, slow down, and reverse this dangerous tendency, the legitimate leverage that uh, you know, the free world has over Georgia should be applied earlier rather than later. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and, 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 and the argument, I mean, the, the reasoning for this is, is also, I mean, very straightforward and simple, which is this, that the further growth of Russian influence in Georgia and further drift of Georgia towards the Russian orbit is quite simply against U.S. and European interest. Uh, 
very much against it. Well, yeah, clearly you just have to look at a map of the Black Sea. If you want to just go into hard, cold geopolitical interests, you just look at a map of the Black Sea, and that's obvious. Now, I was, as you know, I was just in back in Georgia back in May. I was actually in Georgia and Ukraine back in May. And a contrast yeah. between Tbilisi and Kiev could not have been sharper. I mean, in Kiev, you had a city that was at war, um, was uh, subject to nightly bombardments. I spent every every night I was there in, in an air raid shelter. Um, but yet the city was upbeat and and and, uh, and optimistic. Um, I was in Tbilisi, a city that's not technically at war, not being bombarded on a nightly basis. But I never saw Tbilisi so depressed. I've been coming to to Tbilisi and to Georgia since 2008, fairly regularly, and it was I, quite frankly, it was different last time I was there. Now, part of this is the result of the 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 the, uh, the flight, their daily flights from Moscow. Um, I never heard, I, you always hear the Russian language in Georgia, Georgians speak excellent Russian and there are Russian speakers there, but I never heard so much. Depends on generation. Mm -hmm. I, I never heard so much Russian. I walked through old Tbilisi and I don't think I heard Georgian. I heard, I just heard Russian everywhere I was. What do you see going on with this? What is motivating the, uh, Ivani Shrili and, and the Georgia dream government and this, um, I worry the extent to which these the, these people that are coming in are being vetted. I'm all for letting anti-war Russians that want to escape the draft get out of the country. I'm all for that. And you see that in a lot of places. But in Georgia, something else seems to be going on. And I'm, I'm wondering how you view that. Uh, clearly, I mean, uh, it's not only they're not vetted, but we have a, essentially a policy. Of course, there are people who escaped from, from the regime in Georgia, but... Uh, we have just too many cases when, when the, the when the kinds of Russians that Georgia should be embracing have uh, have been deported essentially from from the Lubov Sobol, um, in Tershenderovich, uh, many many important figures from the Russian opposition, and conversely, uh, various Russians with very strange affiliations, to say the least, such as for example. Figures from Kadyrov's entourage have been freely coming to Georgia and 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 uh, holidaying or doing, you know, God knows who. And, and that's actually, uh, that's actually something that, uh, something that hasn't been fully appreciated in, in, in policy circles in, in Washington, for example. And particularly one reason for that is perhaps that the Georgian file has unfortunately, as Georgia slid from radars in recent years, as Georgia has, you know, uh, abandoned its active foreign policy. Georgian file has mostly ended up in the hands of bureaucrats rather than high-ranking political figures. The high-ranking political figures are committed to this region and Georgia and Georgian being being part of the, you know, Europe whole free and at peace. Uh, they are not, I mean, there are too many problems in the world and it's not like uh, those figures are, you know, asking their stuff what's going on in, in Georgia for reports, you know, every week. And as a result, the Georgian file has gotten, so to speak, bureaucratized. If I, if I could say so. And the question of NATO, and you mentioned uh, the Vilnius Summit in the very, very introduction of, uh, of this podcast, the question of NATO Summit in Vilnius very, is very instructive in this regard. Um, yeah, because until now, uh, it was more or less regarded in, in, in Washington, you know, key Western capitals that perhaps not as actively as uh, during the previous government, but Georgia continued, you know, some sort of movement towards NATO membership. Uh, and unfortunately, that that's largely uh, wishful thinking and reflects this, uh, reflects how much uh, some of our friends have been lagging behind the situation on the ground. The truth is, and the tr truth now very sort of brutally, one could say, exposed by the, this uh, abs Georgian abscess in Vilnius, abscess of prime minister. The truth is that Georgia has de facto given up on the political question of NATO membership since 2012. This became more and more visible later, but it was too, too troublesome for bureaucrats to confront this reality. But I'm not saying military cooperation, even though military cooperation was dwindled down gradually too, but the political question of membership has been relinquished essentially by Georgia from from early on, and now it just culminated in this demonstrative and political statement of uh, basically boycotting or being denied access to uh, 
uh, to NATO's uh, Vilnius summit. And, and in, in political sort of reality, the absence of prime minister of Georgia from, from such an important uh, NATO summit amounts to a statement that Georgia is no longer striving to, to become uh, its member. And then, of course, there are a whole series of these extremely worrying symptoms, such as, for example, essentially blaming the war on Ukraine, that Ukraine couldn't avoid the war, refusing flatly to join the sanctions. Uh, not only that, Georgia has resisted, even before this war, any efforts to integrate Georgia's own issue into Western um, sort of uh, Western sanctions imposed upon Russia. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be pragmatic for Georgia for its own issue to be featured? Georgia is also a conduit for breaking sanctions. Georgia was one of the countries named as a key conduit that Russia is using to evade sanctions. So it's not just that they're not joining the sanctions. They're helping Russia evade them. Yeah, there were, there were strong, signs, uh, uh, strong signs for that. Then, of course, the resumption of, uh, of, those, of those flights with Russia when everybody is severing their ties with Russia. Georgia has resumed flights against the very clear and on-the-record advice of both the United States and, and the European Union. The flights were resumed. And there, there are just too many signs that Georgia is uh, gravitating towards the Russian orbit. That, and that is uh, against the Georgian interest. But, uh, but uh, also, uh, it has to be said loud and clear that this trajectory is against the U.S. interest, too. Yeah, no, clearly. Now, if I can, ex- I mean, the Georgia point and, 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 policy, uh, and a clear policy is needed in Washington about that. The, the, the Georgia portfolio has indeed been downgraded here in Washington. Um, and that that's uh, due to a lot of the reasons you stated. Also, though, Georgia's not terribly active here in Washington. I remember a day when the Georgian embassy was one of the coolest embassies in town. Uh, they were holding receptions all the time. They were very active. They were at events. Uh, they were very visible. I couldn't even tell you the name of the ambassador, right now, uh, which is pretty <laughs> remarkable, right? Um, so that's there's that. But there's a thinking I, I buy into this to a degree is that the Ukraine war or Russia's invasion of Ukraine is such a watershed that it, our best Georgia policy right now is probably a good Ukraine policy because if Russia can be defeated decisively in Ukraine, that could create knock-on effects all across the region. Right. I like to say I wrote a piece for foreign policy last year where I argued with, this could create a, a, 19, a 1989 moment sure. where you have a diminishment of Russia's influence, Russia's ability to project power. And that will lead to these countries going where they naturally want to go. So then this is the pro-Western majority in Georgia and the event of a Russian defeat and the event of a weakening of Moscow's power, ability to project power. This will diminish their ability to project power to Georgia and Georgia will be able to move west as as it wanted do you buy that i mean it's it is is the ukraine war the linchpin right now of course the ukraine war is is absolutely crucial but with with you know with all respect uh, uh to you of course and everyone who who uh entertains such idea i would disagree that one thing automatically means another thing that depends on the shape georgia is in and the extent of Russian influence and the time of Russian defeat. If Georgia is is in in a total mess, and the increase of Russian further increase of Russian influence means more mess too. Uh, so if if the, the, if this trajectory is sustained, then uh, it is not guaranteed that uh, you know to to uh, that they uh, you know <clears throat> some kind of swift. Swift uh, undertaking in Georgia would not be considered in, in Moscow to, to, you know, per, to stop their regime implosion or whatever. We don't know how Russia, after the defeat in Ukraine, will, will look like. And so uh, it is, again, pragmatic Georgian interest, but also pragmatic UN, U.S. interest uh, to, <clears throat> uh, to uh, put in place measures and policies and uh, enact legitimate American and European leverage to reverse this uh, the growth of Russian influence today, not tomorrow, because the, this leverage is shrinking as Russian influence uh, grow, grows. All right, one last thing before we move into the second half, where we're going to talk about your history projects. I, is, what, what advice would you give to friends of Georgia in Western capitals, people like me, for example? Uh, but not just people like me, people who are in positions who are act to actually make decisions and influence policy. What is George, what do what do 
pro-Western Georgians need right now from their friends in Western capitals? I think n- number one, uh, number one, uh, the key thing is is first of all to take stock of the situation today in the context of Russian influence. Uh, to 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 face the reality and have a clear and adequate understanding of how things are today on the ground, uh, and not not to be lagging behind. And once that's done, to to put put in place clear policy of enacting Western leverages, such as, for example, the fact that the uh, the fact that the wealth of Mr. Ivanishvili is in in the Western financial system is a leverage, isn't it? Hasn't been has that been put to work? Uh, uh, has that leverage been used in the context of slowing down or reversing the Russian influence? I'm not sure. Would that be a legitimate exercise of American leverage? Oh yes, <laughs> and and that 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 kind of exercise of the, of that leverage would be absolutely uh, and pragmatically both in Georgian people's and and uh, U.S. interest. And that is just one example. Now, that's something I've been advocating for for a while. Um, It's a topic that we will see come up in think tank discussions here in Washington. Um, When it's raised with government officials, you get a little bit of of nervousness about about that. Uh, But I agree. That 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 has to be decided because that has to be decided. uh, That's something to be decided on a higher level, not 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 on a bureaucratic level. Yeah, yeah, no, not even at the ambassadorial level. That's that, that's that, that's that, that's going to be something that's going to be decided at, at the cabinet level. Right, that's a good way to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look for, at a project our guest is involved with that seeks to correct the historical record about Georgia and the Soviet past and ways such efforts are relevant and important today. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Tbilisi, Georgia, is Georgi Kondralaki, who served as a member of the Georgian Parliament from 2008 to 2020 and is currently a project manager with the Soviet Path Research Laboratory, also known as SoBlab. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on X formerly known as Twitter, and you could at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on threads at Power Vertical, if these do. It's an old playbook. Soviet Russia invaded Georgia's first democratic republic in 1921, despite having recognized its independence the year before. And Soviet officials and propaganda outlets then tried to place the blame on Georgia's democratically elected politicians. So, Georgi, in the second part of today's show, I wanted to focus on one of your favorite themes, history. Uh, since leaving the Georgian parliament, you have become involved with the Soviet Past Research Laboratory, also known as SovLab, which seeks to correct the historical record about Georgia and the Soviet past. SovLab was founded in Tbilisi back in 2010 by journalists, historians, and researchers, including our mutual friend, uh, Lasha Bakaradze actually um and um and, and um uh it, its work can be can, can be accessed online um it can be accessed online at sovlab.ge we'll put that link in our show notes but to get us rolling can you explain sovlab's mission and activities i know you just released a video this week on the russian invasion what else are you working on so uh, apart from all of that, we take a lot of pride in the fact that the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs designated SovLab as uh, Georgia's number one organization uh, as, uh, quote, uh, um, responsible for faking history and spreading propaganda. So that's a badge of honor we we are very proud of. So SovLab, what SovLab has been doing is, is basically <clears throat> filling the void of uh, collective memory on the 20th century. Georgia, uh, Georgia society hasn't really uh, settled the score with the, with the 20th century and and the Soviet experience. Uh, uh, one one uh, one remembers that Georgia fought very vocally for independence, but the record isn't straight. 
and there are big, big, big gaps in our uh, collective memory. And that fact is very successfully, as it now appears, is uh, exploited and weaponized by what is now fashionable to call a Russian information warfare machine. A key subject of uh, our work is uh, precisely has become precisely that, not only to do research, and we have uh, outstanding uh, researchers. Uh, we, we have partnerships with the Memorial, for example. And by the way, we had a joint event in Tbilisi with Memorial on October the 7th, when uh, on the day when they got the Nobel Prize, we were sitting on a panel with Memorial leaders here in, in Goethe Institute in, in, in Tbilisi. But we also do uh, countering uh, weaponization of memory. Uh, and uh, we very actively advocate the, the basically a review or reconsideration of of Western counter-disinformation agenda, if you will, broadly speaking, but of course in Georgia in particular, and the integration of memory in it. And there we, we see that there is a certain mismatch between the Western efforts to counter disinformation and, and, the, and actually the way Russian disinformation operations are carried out. Because, the, I mean, the Russians themselves say that the memory, and particularly the memory of the Soviet Union, is the issue number one is that is a matter of existential significance whereas whereas uh, the significance of this question is not really fully appreciated in in western uh, sort of efforts which are mostly focused on you know analy producing analytical materials like fact checking or newsletters and uh, describing the situation analytical materials that don't really that don't really impact the public opinion, whereas the Russians do produce materials. I'm not saying we're, we should produce similar materials, but the principle of impacting the public opinion, I, I think, is the key criterion which should guide uh, how Western, well, U.S., in this case, taxpayer money is spent. And perhaps the best example of what I'm talking about uh, or would be uh, the question of Joseph Stalin in, in yeah. Georgia and weaponi weaponization of Joseph Stalin's um, Georgian origin by... Russian information warfare uh, that has been, I mean, th that has essentially been amplified in re recent, uh, you know, seven, eight years that has been amplified uh, and uh, amplified very successfully. And this success, which the Russian information warfare has achieved with the image of Stalin has largely unfolded under the Western radar. So what we're doing is to, uh, to counter that, but also to bring this development on Western Radar and this success of Russian disinformation is actually very easily measurable. Since 2012, we have uh, 11 new statues of Stalin in Georgia. I mean, imagine what would happen if there would be one new statue of Hitler in Austria, yet we'd have 11 new statues of uh, Stalin. We have a limited number, but polling uh, that suggests this such resurgence of the image of Stalin. Uh, and the logic that drives this, uh, the, uh, the Russian agenda that, this, that is behind this phenomenon and explains why this phenomenon is actually is very dangerous for the future is very simple. The long-term sort of strategic project of the Russian information warfare in Georgia is to cultivate sort of anti-Western, sort of nativist strait of Georgian nationalism uh, through which uh, a wedge uh, uh, or uh, or uh, uh, um, confusion in the social construct of moving towards Europe would be sown. And in that long-term project, the figure of Joseph Stalin is of strategic significance because the, the figure of Joseph Stalin is like umbrella, which 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 covers this whole, or which guides this whole uh, this, uh, project. And and that's why the uh, the the question of how Georgian society, but it's specifically tailored towards Georgia. It's not like Russia. In Russia, there is a different menu that is sort of uh, around Stalin that is that is at play. In Georgia, it's absolutely different, and it's very very smartly tailored towards Georgian reality. And uh, and basically, the logic is uh, the the logic is of, of Stalin. I mean, it's it's very simple. If you as a Georgian are uh, proud of Stalin, at least a bit, if they can make you feel at least slightly proud of Stalin, then are you more likely or less to consume other tactical, if you will, sort of narratives? Because the Western efforts, and we've been to, Brian, to so many conferences where this now fashionable topic of disinformation is discussed. Right. Uh, but th these discussions are mostly very, for one, elitist, 
and are mostly, you know, t taking place in, in a very small group of uh, people who think the same anyway. Uh, you know, it's very comfortable to discuss this and fight this information in conference rooms of uh, good hotels. <clears throat> but also they, uh, uh, they miss the, they, they missed this whole development of how how the uh, the memory broadly speaking and and the, that of Joseph Stalin has uh, been successfully weaponized. So around forty six percent of Georgians, there is a a, a poll from last year, a USAID funded poll that suggests that forty six percent of Georgians say that uh, patriotic Georgians should be uh, proud of Stalin. There is an earlier poll that suggests that uh, around forty percent of Georgians believe that Stalin was a Christian and patron of the church. So for someone to convince almost half of the population in such complete nonsense, it is a success. Yeah. But it, by any measure, it is a success. And and uh, and our point is that this, I mean, this su success should be recognized and dealt with. And, and, and I'm not really, we're not really sure that, uh, you know, analytical products such as fact-checking with all respect and, you know, you uh, and and um, importance for people like me who is interested in this, they don't really impact uh, the public opinion. Basically, the Russian project has been to to inject, to squeeze the figure of Stalin into Georgian patriotic discourse, into Georgian nationalism, uh, if you will. And our project, what what we're trying to do is is to sort of Finally, with 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 big delay, but uh, deal with this question of Stalin and Georgia. There are, of course, so many works about Stalin uh, out there, but it so appears, and that mirrors this uh, this uh, uh, delay with dealing with uh, Stalin. There is not a single credible work on the question of uh, Joseph Stalin's role in the history of his own native land in the 20th century. This story has never been told. And so that's exactly what we're doing. We are we have a team of a terrific team of researchers. We're doing archival work, but the but the product we're working on will be you know what's called a popular science book. Uh, we have Lasha Bulgaze, who is Georgia's most acclaimed writer, and so it's like collaboration between the researchers with myself as, as an editor. And the end product will be a popular science book, uh, and not an academic book that will tell this story, uh, the, okay. the story of Stal Stalin's vendetta against his uh, native land. And there we're going to have a lot of audiovisual products and actually a campaign around Georgia. So not, not an, a sort of a presentation in, in, a, in a hotel with 50 people who think the same anyway. No, we're going to tour Georgia and campaign with this. With a, with a simple logic, we're actually reversing the logic, the Russian propaganda, with which Russian propaganda has utilized the figure of Stalin. For them, Stalin is a ter terrific propaganda gateway through this, you know, figure with mustache or the branding that everyone recognizes, they've successfully engaged the broader masses. And we're going to do the same, engage the broader masses by telling the truth uh, uh, about Stalin and Georgia and how he essentially stole the 20th century from this country. Now, when, when you do that, be sure to let me know, because we'll have you back on the show to to talk about it. I mean, it's... um. This goes beyond disinformation. This is much more meta than disinformation. We're talking here sure. historical historical narratives. Um, and unfortunately, um, these historical narratives have seeped their way into Western thinking, into Western academia. Um, there's a very concrete reason for this. We explored this on past podcasts looking at Ukrainian history, um, where the basic, the white Russian historians following the Russian Civil War emigrated to the West. Um, because they were not communist, they were embraced in the West, but they were, in fact, fascists. <laughs> uh, chauvinists, chauvinists, chauvinists. Chauvinists, and they evolved into fascists. They were monarchists at best, right? Um, but nevertheless, they took this Russian imperial version of history, this Russian imperial historical narrative, um, and that got embedded in U.S. universities. When I learned the history of this part of the world, I learned the wrong history, right? And I tell my students this now, that I am correcting that you are the beneficiary of 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 my uh, learning bad history and having to re-educate myself on a lot of these yeah. countries. Most and can and imagine what what history is taught in in, in Russia and how how, uh, how important history is. Yeah. 
still being fought. Yeah, yeah. But How important is... history, historical narratives are in the context of, of this war, that weaponization of history is, is, is uh, can actually uh, basically be, be, be guide or, you know, uh, a service. Yeah. Well, we look of the... an actual war. To do this, we have to counter this imperial narrative of history. And Ukraine has done this very effectively now. They've successfully pushed back at a new narrative, a more correct and historically accurate narrative of Ukrainian history that diverges, to put it mildly, significantly from the Russian imperial version of history, right? This um, this stress on Ukraine as a member of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania as a nation that was embedded and was born in Europe is a similar effort afoot with Georgia. Um, I'm talking about the search for a usable, correct Western narrative of Georgian history. I mean, some people have focused on the Democrat of the short-lived Georgian Democratic Republic from 1918 to 1921. I know this is one of your favorite topics, but is this on your radar to kind of construct a usable Western version of Georgian history? Absolutely, and it is indeed, as you said, uh, the 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 story of the Democratic Republic of Georgia that existed from 1918 to 1921, which actually was uh, a functioning uh, by by stand not only by standards of the time. It, in many re respects, it was ahead of its time. It was a, a, a stable, uh, uh, functioning, consolidated, using modern terminology, democracy with uh, elections, fair elections with. Uh, rather mature political contestation in, in parliament with the women parliamentarians, with jury trials, <clears throat> with uh, the world. There were more women in parliament in the Georgian three, the, the three years of the Georgian Democratic Republic than there were in most Western countries at that point. In, in most Western countries, women didn't have right to vote, yet we had like, uh, women in parliament. And, and as it, uh, a colleague of mine at Solop discovered a few years ago, the world's first democratically elected Muslim woman was in Georgia on local elections in 1918 as an independent uh, candidate in, in one of the uh, uh, Azerbaijani uh, populated communities, won as an independent candidate in 1918. And so, yes, that is the that is the memory that we have to revisit. The experience of the Democratic Republic of Georgia was discredited for 70 years by Soviet propaganda and demonized particularly Georgia's first democratically elected leader, Noe Jordania, was very, very consistently and viciously demonized and discredited, and this inertia still endures. So uh, so uh, essentially the, the, the redefining Georgia's national narrative in our understanding, in my understanding, uh, uh, is uh, requires two things. First is to tell the story of the Democratic Republic of Georgia as democracy. Not as a story of how how we lost independence uh, uh, as a result of the wars that Joseph Stalin, by the way, initiated, right. and, and and Lenin was uh, for postponement of the issue, as he called it, but uh, from the perspective of democracy, what kind of country was it? How did it function, uh, and uh, and uh, what its continuation, what what its survival would have meant for the development of our society? And by the way, Georgia managed to obtain full-fledged international recognition at the Paris Peace Conference, which unfortunately Ukraine didn't have enough time to gain. And the second uh, grand priority in this sort of meta <laughs> subject, as you said, is again dealing with the question of Joseph Stalin, the image of Joseph Stalin that has been mythologized by these decades and of, of propaganda and, and weaponization of his Georgian origin is like a Trojan horse in in the Georgian um, patriotic discourse, and it has to be dealt with, and the truth, all the truth, has to be told. What he actually did to his native land, uh, Georgia, how his personal political agenda drove his fanatical push in Moscow to invade Georgia in 1921, and then so many of the vendettas that he had to carry out uh, and stage essentially bloodbaths uh, in in Georgia, especially in 1924 when there was an armed uprising against the communist uh, Russian occupation, but also in the later years. The, the website is sovlab.ge. I would urge all of my listeners to to take a look at it. It's it's in both English and Georgian. 
Um, and also our Facebook, where we have some clips in English. And there's clips in English on Facebook. We're going to use some clips from your latest video in the opening of the of today's show. We'll put the link to that in 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 the show notes. I'm looking at the time here, and if I don't wrap it up, I think my producers are going to impose sanctions on me, and that's something I certainly <laughs> want to avoid. So on that note, I'll wrap it up. Anything you want to add, Georgi, before I wrap up the show? Thank you for having me, Brian. And uh, it's very important to keep uh, Georgia and uh, Georgia on the radar in, in Washington, essentially, and uh, remind people of the broader importance of of not letting Georgia slide, slide away. Yeah, no, and I think what we are witnessing right now uh, is the final stage of the breakup of the Soviet Union, the final stage of the Russian Empire. Russia is, of course, trying to reverse that, um, but there will be plenty of us who are, are pushing against that attempt at reversal. So that's all we have time for today. We'll wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Tbilisi, Georgia, has been Georgi Kondralaki, who served as a member of the Georgian Parliament from 2008 to 2020 and is currently a project manager with the Soviet Path Research Laboratory, also known as Sovlab. Georgi, thanks for an enlightening discussion and making me and our listeners a whole lot smarter. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thank you for uh, having me and uh, uh, that, that, that's across our statement. <laughs> I'd, also, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our, our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, at Power Vertical. And very importantly, you can now also follow us on threads at Power Vertical. Please follow us on threads. And if you happen to be on Blue Sky, we're on Blue Sky at Power Vertical as well. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 